We are now in our second week of a series titled The Four G's. And The Four G's is really a series in the study of the character of God. That God is great, that's the first G. God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious. And the character of God and understanding who God is is no minor matter. In fact, a great pastor of last century, an incredible author named A.W. Tozer, he wrote a book called The Pursuit of God, which if you have not read it, would be really worth your time to go over to the bookstore and pick up that book. It's outstanding. But he has a quote that is oftentimes referred to that is provocative and very powerful. And he says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if you ever, if you're one of those self-reflective individuals and you go, what is the most significant thing about me? Here's what you need to do. Get in a room, close your eyes. Let God come to your mind, think of God and whatever comes to your mind When you think about God, Tozer would say is the most important thing about you. Now you may sit here and go, that's kind of an exaggerated statement. The most important thing about me, why does he say that? Well, here's why he says that. It's from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. The Bible would say that your views, what you think vertically about God, affects the way you behave horizontally. So your worship affects your walking or what you believe affects the way you behave. Now, no matter who you are, if you sit in this room and you don't believe in God at all, you would agree with the statement, what you believe affects what you behave. Take God out of the equation for a minute. What you believe affects the way you behave. If you believe that your hunger is going to be filled in a tasty way by pancakes, then you may drive after this service, straight over to Liberty Market and get bacon pancakes and they will taste good and they will feel good. What you believed will affect the way you behave. If you believe money is going to make you more secure and more happy, then you're going to go after money in whatever form it takes. Whether it's network marketing or whether it's the next job that you can find. What you believe does affect the way you behave. What the Bible says fundamentally is what you view about God is ultimately what determines how you live. Now we're a church and Christians fill these pews. And if you read the Bible rightly, the Bible may say Christians fill these pews. And I say that because I mean this, that as a Christian, we're constantly working towards deeper forms of spiritual growth. And the Bible would say what spiritual growth is, is the narrowing of the gap between what you say you believe and what you actually believe, what you live. Or a narrowing of the gap between your confessional faith and your functional faith. And so our desire for this series is for us to see a narrowing of the gap from just what we say to what we believe. And for us to really come to an understanding that the Bible says if you don't live it, in fact you don't believe it. So if there are problems in your beliefs, your belief about God, it will affect itself in how you behave. And if you're behaving wrongly, then the first thing that needs to come to our minds as Christians is I'm not believing something about God or I'm believing something inaccurately about 
God. So the design of the 4G series is a very pastoral series. And that's why these phrases are truths about the character of God, but then tagged to them are very practical realities that push ourselves to live them. So the first one is God is great. This is what we looked at last week. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. That gets it down to the street level. God is glorious is what we'll look at today. So we don't have to fear others. Next week, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And then the last week, we'll see that God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. This series, the four G's, has the power to change your life. And we say that because there are handlebars to it. You can memorize these four statements. You can preach them to yourselves. You can teach them in your home. You can train up your children in them. Husbands and wives can share them with each other. Friends can share truth to one another about these things. These have the power to change your life, our families, and ultimately our church. And so we are praying and have high hopes about these. Justin Marshall's a pastor here. And when he first encountered the four G's, I think for over a year or so, he has set an iPhone reminder that pops up every morning at about 8 o'clock with all four G's. And he says that he makes himself read them, even though he's memorized them, because he knows the four G's have the power to affect and change his day that day. And then he said, if that day feeds into the next day and I continue to live out these truths, ultimately that has the power to change my life. Now, all four of these G's are based upon a character of God. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. I want you to see something in these lines that is so important. Many Christians look and they say, well, if I'm a Christian, then I should not try to be in control of my life. Or if I'm a Christian, then I should not fear others. That's not where we're going with this series. We are moving from should not to need not. Do you see the difference? The difference is huge because should not puts the onus and emphasis on you. Need not puts all the weight on God. God is glorious. We need not fear others. God is glorious, we need not fear others. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and the guys will get you a Bible. You can pull out an electronic copy or a hard copy. We emphasize to you um, significantly to bring Bibles with you each week. It'll definitely help you learn the scriptures. We are going to be in John chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and we're going to work our way all the way through verse 18. So I'm going to read a section of this. Uh, Listen close, for these are the words of God. John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom it is said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. The fear of man is a very interesting thing. And I would submit to you moves every one of us in these rooms more than we could even think or imagine, and it's very nuanced. I was reading just last night an article that came out in the New York Times sports section about the Olympics. How many of you guys have been watching the Olympics? Raise your hands here in the conference center. Lots of you. Then you would know the U.S. is at the top of the medals. We have the most medals, we have the most golds, but one area we have not done as well in, we have not received goals in, golds in is track and namely because of a guy from Jamaica named Usain Bolt and Usain Bolt won the 100 he won the 200 and then last night he anchored the 4 by 100 and beat the Americans again and got the gold medal and as I was reading this article they interviewed the American anchor who if you watch the final picture Ryan Bailey is behind you can see him he's behind Usain Bolt but getting beat by quite a bit and the article said this Ryan Bailey ran well but could not keep pace with Bolt who could asked if his performance would have been a good enough to overtake any other sprint in the world Bailey smiled and said this that's tough to say Bolt he's an animal He's a beast. Once he opens his stride, it's tough to stay with him. I just ran my heart out. Now, I read into those words because Ryan Bailey spent his whole life training for the Olympics. He looks across and he goes, Usain Bolt is anchoring the Jamaican team. He's an animal. He's a beast. If that guy opens up his stride, I can run my heart out and I'm not going to win. We encounter this, don't we? When we come up and we encounter someone that we just know is better than us, this inferiority complex can emerge. And we begin to fear, man, oh, Usain Bolt. And this happens. This happens in your jobs. This can happen in your homes. Is that you work so hard and yet you get rocked by the reality that somebody is better than you. An inferiority complex can rise up from the fear of man. As can an over-exaggerated view of yourself. So they then interview Usain Bolt. And Usain Bolt says this. Usain Bolt, last night. I've done it. This is what I wanted. I wanted to become a legend. And then he says this. You can bask in my glory now. You can bask in my glory now. Now you sit back and go, gosh, that seems like an over-exaggerated view of yourself. What drives that? And you would think, well, not the fear of man, but listen to what he says next. For me, that was for all the doubters, all the people saying I wasn't going to win. So what drove him? Other people's views, the fear of other people drives him, and Bolt says, they can stop talking now. I'm a legend. Bob Costas nails it at the end of last night. He says, as great as Usain Bolt is, it is hard to have a higher opinion of him than he does of himself. <laughs> Costas nails it, but the reality is we can look at Usain Bolt and go, that's ridiculous, and yet we 
many of us, most of us, are living out of the reality of the fear of man. And the fear of man, the Bible would say, is because we're believing lies about God's glory. We're truncating his glory. We don't understand it enough. And so we functionally believe that he's not as glorious as other people's opinion of me. And so this can manifest itself through you living functionally for the approval of other people and or avoiding the disapproval of others at all costs. So functionally, what it might look like to live for the approval. Will you put it in? Who's moving me? Who drives me? Is it, I so bad want the approval of my boss or I so bad want the approval of my spouse or my kids or my coworkers around me that that's what drives me to become a workaholic or that's what drives me to say, I don't care about what anybody thinks or this is what leads me to exaggerate and portray lies about myself a la Facebook, Right? Like, who puts their worst picture of themselves on Facebook? Or better yet, who puts just a real picture of themselves on Facebook? It's like all glamour shots on Facebook, and your status updates look really, really good. Or maybe, you know, you fear others, and so it's really, really bad that you want everybody to love you and want you. But exaggeration and lies, whether they're great or whether they're little parenting Moms or dads and people begin to ask you your parenting philosophy or your schooling philosophy and you begin to exaggerate or lies or shift around because you want their approval. Or you work so hard to avoid the disapproval that you're unwilling to say true things, unwilling to say hard things. Peer pressures is true when you get older as it is when you're younger. People are doing this and I don't want their disapproval. I need this deal, right? Here's one that I know hits everybody. Your response to critique. When your spouse critiques you, when your kids critique you, when your boss critiques you, and you get right back. That's evidence, the reality of the fear of man. And the Bible says this, a a, a statement so short, so true, and so profound that again, no matter what you believe, it's true. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man is a snare. A snare is like a trap. You get trapped and you're in bondage to the fear of man. There's a modern day spoken word poet, not a Christian at all by profession. He would say it out loud. He's not a Christian. He actually adheres to another religious system. He has a poem that he does in spoken word. And it's fundamentally about all the things that he feels in his gut guilty that he has not said that he hasn't said, and he says this, I think that all the silence is worse than all the violence. Fear is such a weak emotion, that's why I despise it. We're scared of almost everything, afraid to even tell the truth. So scared of what you think of me that I'm scared of even telling you. Sometimes I'm like the only person I feel safe to tell it to. Now listen to this, based upon Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man is a snare. He says this, I'm locked inside a cell in me and I know that there's a jail in you. Consider this, you're bailing out, so take a breath and inhale a few. Now, he goes on to say things that I would not say or what liberates you, but I'll say his words right here. There's a jail in you. Consider this, you're bailing out and take a few breaths. What would the Bible say to do? Take a few breaths of the glory of God. If you want to be set free from this trap, this cell inside of you, this jail, breathe in the glory of God. 
that you might be freed from the fear of man. In John chapter 1, 9 through 18, we're going to look at this, that God is glorious first in his ways. God is glorious in his ways. Second, God's glorious words. And then last, God's glorious weight. God's glorious weight. God is glorious is what we're saying. So what does the word glorious mean? God is glorious. Well, many people would say, and they're right, glory is possessing consummate worth. It's beauty. It's virtue. It's excellence. It is of the utmost importance. At the word glory, in Isaiah chapter 6, when the angels see God and are in front of God and Isaiah's just beheld him and all the angels are saying, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. The word glory means weight or heaviness. Weight or heaviness. The way something truly is, its substance is weighty. I have four kids, two boys. The six-year-old's about to be seven the four-year-old this month will turn five. So they're right at that point where, you know, they like to bow up to dad and, you know, they're trying to get me to wrestle. Dad, you're a wuss, you know, and I'll, eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, dad, and they'll come up and like smack me on the back and they want me to wrestle with them. So I'll start wrestling with them and kind of, you know, throw them to the ground and I'm stronger. And then if at any point I want them to just stop, here's what I do. I get them on the ground and then I just lay on them and let my weight just bear on them. And you'll see them at first, they'll be like, ha, ha, ha. And then as I get more weight, it's like, ha, ha. And then, dad, dad. And then I can get them to do whatever I want because the sheer weight of me feels like it's crushing them. And so I'll say, say that your dad's the toughest man in the world. <laughs> You're the toughest man in the world. <laughs> say that you're never going to mess with me again. I'll never mess with you again. Tell me I'm the best. You're the best. And then I get off. But what just happened is the sheer weight in reality of me being on them moved them to say something. If we stand up and then they get the weight off of them and they say something again, the sheer strength and heaviness, me being bigger, I can like touch them and they fall over. Boom. And they move. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is no weightier, there is no heavier there is no reality more ultimate in the entire universe than God he moves things and the Bible says and he wants you to know his glory the substance of his weight John Piper says this the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness it is the going public of his holiness it is the way he puts his holiness on display for all the people to apprehend. So God's glory is not something that he keeps hidden from us. It's something that he puts on display. And that's why the psalmist says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And the earth is proclaiming his handiwork. His glory is his holiness that is on display. And God is really serious about his glory. He plays for keeps. He says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. I, my glory I give to no one other, nor my praise to idols. This morning I was sharing with Haley, my wife, Usain Bolt's quotes, bask in my glory. 
my wife's really sweet, and she goes, does he not know that God made him fast? I said, maybe not. And she goes, does he not know that God might not like him saying, bask in my glory? I said, I don't know. Does, God, does he not know that God could say, you're no longer fast, and he would no longer be fast? I said, I don't know, but it reminded me of us just being in Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar stood on top of that building and he looked out and he said, this whole kingdom is mine and God didn't like it and he made him into a man who thought he was a cow and he began eating grass. I don't know why God does it to him and not to Usain Bolt. I don't know what's going to happen and there's no promise. I'm not God, but I know God does not share his glory with others or his praise to idol. This God plays for keeps, and you see it all throughout the scriptures. So let's look at God's glory more specifically from John chapter 1. God's glorious ways. Start in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, yet the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, and they did not receive him. Now, the Bible, it is very clear, states that God created the world. And not just that God created the world, but that God sustains the world, that he upholds the world, that in him everything holds together, that without him nothing holds together. Last Christmas, I was invited to a gingerbread house-making party. Okay, so I went to this party, we brought our kids, and most of, you know, you make gingerbread houses for the kids, but then the kids start asking you, hey, will you help me, you know, and they, you know, they're supposed to put, like, snow on the ground, but they put gumdrops all over the place, and it's, you know, it just looks crazy. So I try to start making my own, and they say that frosting will help hold up, you know, the graham crackers that are the sides of the houses, so I put a bunch of frosting down, and the Graham cracker stays like this, and then it falls. You know, so I put some more up. I try to reinforce it with gumdrops, and then it looks like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And so at the end, I finish the whole entire thing, and we're supposed to present it, and mine is not holding together at all. So you try to present it, and I'm trying to hold up this wall, you know, reinforce these gumdrops, hold it all together. A gingerbread house, okay? I'm just trying to keep up a gingerbread house And the Bible says that God upholds the universe by his word. The amazing nature and the glory of God's ways. Now think about this transcendent God who created it all, who sustains it all. It says, and he is the true light, which enlightens everyone. He came into the world. He was coming into the world. Verse 14 says, and he came into the world. Now think about how bad God wants us to see and to understand his glory, that he left glory of all glory to come into our world. He came into our world, became like us, so that he might enlighten us. Now what does the light do? If you were to come in this room in the chapel or you were to go into the conference center midweek and nobody was there, these rooms are pitch black. You don't know what's going on on the floors. You don't know if there's mice running around. You don't know if there's children playing underneath it. But if you hit the lights, what gets exposed is reality. So when John says here, 
the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world, he was coming to show reality, weight, substance, the utmost reality of God. Now it says now he's in the world. He is in the world. Now just hear the amazing language that's used here. He was in the world as the one who created the world. The creator of the world came into the world. The wonder of his ways, the wonder of the creator becoming human to manifest to us truth in reality is a wonder of God's ways. Then the wonder of his way of creation. He was now walking on this ball that he had created intricately and was upholding intricately. N.D. Wilson has an excellent book called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. The subtitle is Wide-Eyed Wonder in God's Spoken World. He says this to all of us. Have you ever really stopped to think about life? God spoke and the stars jumped into order. We live on a near perfect ball hurtling through space at around 67,000 miles per hour. That's to pilots, Mach 86. This ball is also spinning while it hurdles, so tack on an extra 1,000 miles per hour at the fat parts. And this is all, listen to this language, and this is all tucked into a hurricane of stars. The wonder of God's ways in creation. He came into the world, this world that he had made, this world that he had made, not just this big sphere, but getting all the way down to the bugs he created. Francis Chan reminds us that a caterpillar has 228 separate and distinct muscles in its head. What? How small must those muscles be? 228 in a caterpillar. He goes on that the average elm tree, think about the average elm tree that you've seen before. The average elm tree, how many leaves are on it? Six million. Six million leaves on an average elm tree. And your own heart, our own hearts, generate enough pressure as it pumps blood through your body that it can squirt blood up to 30 feet. My sons would love that. Right? Pull a heart out, let it pump, squirt blood 30 feet. They'd be like, yes! That's incredible. The wonder of God's ways. This universe is, is not small. In the book that we're promoting through this series, Tim Chester's book, You Can Change, which is fantastic, Chester says this. Traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, you would encircle the earth seven times in one second and pass the moon in two seconds. That's fast. At this speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach our nearest star. <laughs> and 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. There are thought to be at least 100 trillion galaxies in the universe. It would take 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And you have still only just begun to explore the universe. Now, okay, I don't know if you heard all of that, but that's big, right? And Isaiah 40 says that God measures the universe with the span of his hand. With the span of his hand. 
Isaiah 40 then goes on to say that he names and counts the numbers of stars. Now, if you didn't know this, the largest star, most powerful star that we know of is the sun. Now, listen to this. It would take the gross national product of the United States, which is $14 trillion. It would take the gross national product of the United States, $14 trillion, for 7 million years for SRP to power the sun for one second. <laughs> That's my favorite stat of all. Like, that is unbelievable. The gross national product of the United States of America, which is $14 trillion for 7 million years for SRP to power the sun for one second. God created them all, named them all, knows them all. Every star. Why? Let me continue with the quote from John Piper and extended a few sentences that I didn't read you earlier. John Piper, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. The heavens are telling the glory of God. It means that he's shouting at us. He shouts at us with clouds. He shouts at us in the blue expanse. He shouts at us with the gold on the horizons. He shouts with galaxies and stars. He is shouting, I am glorious. Then Piper has a very um, pointed statement to us. He says this, open your eyes. God's not hiding himself. He's putting himself on display. But look at what John 1.10 says. He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the, the world did not know him. He came to his own, verse 11, and his own people did not receive him. His own people, who were expecting his coming, did not receive him. Why? Because these people didn't acknowledge God for as glorious, as weighty he, as he was. Other things held weight. Other things moved them. It's the same with you and I. Why do we fear others? Why are we driven to do these things? Because other things in our lives hold more weight. He comes to his own. He comes to us. We do not receive him because other things hold more weight. Who holds the weight in your life? Who is it truthfully that moves you? We read off a list earlier. Your boss, your spouse, your coworkers, yourself even. Who holds weight in your life? Who holds sway? That's to whom you give glory. As Piper said, open your eyes. They're not worthy of the weight. John then goes on and, and begins to show us God's glorious words. God's glorious words. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. The power, that's a powerful, full of grace and truth. Now let me ask you this. How did people see, Jesus came to us, how did they see his glory? Full of grace and full of truth. They saw it in his words. They heard of it from his words. Now we spoke earlier about the grandeur of God in creation and the power of his words is what we're about to look at the power 
and love of his words is what we're going to look at in a minute. Think about powerful words. Right now we're entering into election season, season and people get really heated up about politics in the election season when it's a presidential election. Now, I'm one of those who's learning that we should care far more about local politics than we do, but there's a reason people get really fired up about the presidential election, because if you didn't know, the president of the United States has extraordinary power. Look at these roles of the president of the United States and think about how powerful his words become, whether spoken and or written. He's the chief executive That means the president runs the government. He issues executive orders. He oversees 150 departments. He's got powerful words. He's the commander-in-chief. With a word, he can declare war on another country. And coming from the United States, the most powerful military in the history of the world, that's powerful. He's the chief diplomat, which means he's the leader in our foreign policy. He speaks on behalf of the entire country. He's the legislative leader. He recommends laws. And even after the legislation passes both houses in Congress, there's a piece of paper that gets on his desk that he has to use his words in writing to sign. And he puts the law into place. Now, that's the president of the United States, which many would say the United States may be the most powerful nation ever in the history of the world. Certainly, people would view it as the most powerful nation even now after a bum economy. And yet Isaiah 40 says that the nations of the earth are like dust on the scales. Okay? My, my sons just played in a basketball game, the consolation game, which means they're playing for third place in the I-9 Sports League. And they were playing at the Mountainside Fitness in Gilbert. So Val Vista and the 202. We got in there and like any um, six-year-old and five-year-old, they would walk in the doors and say, we got to go to the bathroom. So, okay, we got to go to the bathroom. So we walked into the locker room. And if you walk into a locker room at a fitness facility, you always walk past a scale. And scales, no matter how much you weigh and how horrible you feel about your health, scales scream to you, step on me. Step on me, step on me. So I I took my kids to the bathroom and I walked back and it was getting the best of me. Step on me, step on me. So I started taking every possible thing out of my pockets that I could, laying them down. I want to undo my belt because I don't want any weight on me that doesn't show the reality of how much I really weigh. But I never got on my knees and went, somebody, why? Why would you get down on your knees? To blow the dust off the scale. Someone would look at you and go, That's ridiculous. Dust is inconsequential. It has no power. It's not going to show up in any weight. God says that the nations of the earth are like dust on the scales. Compared to him. Compared to him. And yet the power of the president's words strike us. But what about the power of God's word? Augustine had a statement when he looked and he saw the beauty of all of creation. And he said, how did all of this come about? He went to the scriptures and he came up with the idea of the divine imperative. What the divine imperative means, what is the word, you guys know what the word imperative means? It's a command. Here's the only conclusion he could come to through studying the sciences, through studying all the scripture. He said it came about by the divine imperative. What did that mean? God said, let there be, and there was. He spoke, and there was. What's amazing about that is then in Colossians 1 says that he upholds the universe by his powerful word, right? Like who, what kind of person, being has that kind of power? 
to bring light from darkness and life out of nothing and bring about energy. We never knew energy before and power and life out of just the very command of his word. Who is like that? That's what the disciples said of Jesus, right? Jesus is living and he still sees. He calms storms. He raises dead people to life and the disciples go, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Christ's words were powerful. We have seen his glory, full of truth, full of reality, coming to bear on this creation, stilling seas, calming storms, raising dead people to life. In Luke chapter 7, there's a scene where Jesus' powerful words come to match his loving words, or the truth, the powerful truth, comes to match his grace. And he walks into a scene, you can pass it so easily in Luke chapter 7, it's basically a paragraph long, and it says that out of the city was coming a woman with a funeral profession, and she was a widow, which means women didn't have any power at the time. Their power was all bound up in men. Her husband had died, and now she was at the funeral of her only son. No more males around, right? She's weeping. The wailers are there. Jesus, it says, locks eyes on her. And the conclusion of the story is Jesus' powerful words by saying to the son, get up and rise. This dead man awakes from the dead and is now alive. His powerful words. But what you can so easily miss is that it says Jesus' eyes lock on this woman and his heart is filled with compassion and his words to her. Now think about his glorious words. His words to her, do not cry. That's what I say to my kids when they start crying, is that I hold them tenderly, I wipe away their tears, and I go, hey, buddy, don't cry. And they can begin to trust me because I'm dad, right? They think I can do more than I can actually do, but they rest, they're quieted by my love, don't cry. These glorious words of a transcendent God who spoke and universes flung into existence looks at a woman and says, don't cry. We have seen his glory that is full of grace and full of truth. Do you take Jesus at his word, right? Like when you take someone at their word, you want to know they're powerful enough to keep it. He is. And then you want to know that their power is not going to be misused to crush you. So you want to know they're powerful and they're loving. So Jesus' word is powerful enough, he's trustworthy to believe him. And he's loving enough to go to him. That's why he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I have the power to do it, I'll do it, and I love you. As Zephaniah 3.17 says, he will rejoice over you with singing, he will quiet you with his love. Do you take Jesus at his word? Do you trust him? Here's the last thing, God's glorious weight. The last verse in this says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, meaning Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but Jesus, that's the he, has made him known. You ever think about this? People oftentimes look at Jesus and they go, Jesus is God, or Jesus shows us God. That's true. But just for the sake of deeper understanding, think about this. God is like Jesus. So when you see Jesus interact like this with the widow at Nain, that's God. 
He has made him known. Now, we see this, that Jesus was a man full of grace and truth, but he's also glorious. This same John who wrote this gospel writes, likely writes the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, John is given a task. He's given a task to write letters to the seven churches. And it says, how was he given this task? He was on the island of Patmos. He was exiled. And he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, what do you do when you hear a loud voice like a trumpet? Turn around, right? So he turns around. Now, hear this. This is God's glorious weight. Then I turned, Revelation 1.12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, what does fire do? It consumes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice, his voice was like the roar of many waters. He had just said a trumpet. Now he says the roar. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And if that wasn't terrifying enough, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, we said this about the sun earlier, right? The GNP of the United States, $14 trillion for 7 million years. SRP would take that much money to power the sun for one second. His face was like the sun shining in strength? No, in full strength. Now, when you encounter a figure that glorious, that weighty, what happens? Well, like what happens in most of the scriptures. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Like, what, what does that mean? You look at that figure and his eyes are like flames of fire. His face is like the sun. Everything is pristine in holiness. And just like Isaiah, you know what happens to John as he goes, I'm undone. I'm a wretch. I cannot stand before this glory. I am so minuscule and so sinful and so heinous in his sight. I fall at his feet as though dead, face down. I am prostrate before this God. And you know what he's thinking is, you will consume me. Just like Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. He's gonna be consumed, burned up. And at that moment, maybe for the first time in his life, John believes at the core of his being and he's worthy to do it. But look at what God does. I love this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. First off, you see the weight and you fall to your face because of the sheer weight. But he lays his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. Now hear this, why is it that I fear not? Because you're the everlasting one, you're the all-powerful one, you're the holy one, and John's going, I know it, and I'm still scared to death. And then he says, but I'm also the one, I died, and I rose again. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I am the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. Words of power, I'm the everlasting one. I know it, but words of grace. And I'm the one who all of that sin that makes you fall to your face right now, I took it. 
all of the realities of you think you're dead right now, I rose from the dead as the first fruits that you too might now have life. Fear not, you're mine. Fear not, you're mine. Now, church, take who it is you fear, who moves you. You know who it is and you know you have somebody. Fill in the blank. Walk them up these stairs, take their hand. Walk them slowly, okay? This is the one who moves me. I fear them, the fear of man that keeps me ensnared. Walk them up here and place them next to the Jesus of Revelation chapter one. Who do you fear? Like, seriously, like at that moment, isn't it ridiculous? This is why he says, I hold the keys to death in Cades. Fear not him who can only kill the body, but fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Like it doesn't matter if somebody's trying to slit my throat. They are nothing compared to that vision of Jesus. Nothing. You want to know what it is that motivates people to go into horrifically horrible situations or do things that you go, man, they're compromising all their safety and security and comfort and convenience. Who shall we fear? Just living a life that isn't ensnared and imprisoned, but the freedom that comes from knowing there's one that powerful and that loves me that much. Here's the conclusion you come to when you see that and you believe it. God is glorious. We need not fear. We need not fear others. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed by your glory. And your glory is not something that we just up and say, God's glorious and it has no effect on our lives. God, it changes everything. It brings about the utmost security. It brings about a quieting in our lives that we can be quieted by your powerful love. God, let that be true in us. Holy Spirit, come now and make sure that we would be doers of this word and not just hearers of it. May we remain in you and you in us that we might bear much fruit. In Christ's name, amen.